This is Hope and Dread. I'm Charlotte Burns. And I'm Alan Schwartzman. This is a program about the tectonic shifts in power in art. We wanted to hear from people who are making change and people who are resisting change. This is a show about power. So today, you'll hear from the people who are really running America's museums, the trustees. Stagnation will be the death (laughs) of of certain organizations. Life isn't fair. I just have to believe that people are trying their best, and that's all we can do. There does need to be significant institutional change. This is where the real power is. It is the epicenter of the problem. So this is really where change happens across the board. Yes, sorry, pun intended. Over the past three episodes, we've heard so many issues, complaints, protests, and problems. Today's episode is where the buck stops. We've reached the top of the museum power pyramid. We'll find out if the trustees have really grasped the issues we've been talking about. Do they have ambitious enough solutions? Who makes sure the museum sticks to its mission, that the trustees are doing their job? We'll ask the question, who governs the governors? So, what do museums need now? Here's Larry Marks, who's on the board of directors at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. I think it really takes an enlightened director to often educate the boards of museums, because if you look at a lot of boards of museums, I mean, there are a lot of old white guys, and they really did need to be educated. The museum really needs representation from its constituents, which, you know, are the employees and the artists and the audience at large, the community at large that they serve. Larry's an example of a board member who does represent, in the broadest sense, tradition, stability, the old guard, but he is also an extremely enlightened, thoughtful, humane person who happens to sit on the board of an institution led by a visionary leader, Annie Philbin. This is a very rare set of um, extremely positive conditions. So unfortunately, Larry is in the minority and one hopes that his thinking can influence greatly and lead the way for others. Larry's may not be commonly held opinions, but whether museum boards like it or not, times are changing fast. Museums have always been inward-looking to an extent. It's not just the exhibits that are roped off, but their corridors of power especially so. That needs to change, says Sarah Arison. She's the president of the Arison Arts Foundation and vice chair of the board of MoMA PS1 and a trustee of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The philanthropic world that I grew up in was a very proprietary one. It was, these are our donors, our artists, our programs, and there was a real reluctance to kind of share with other organizations in any way. I, you know, whether it was a fear of donors being poached or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but it was, it was very protected. And one of my personal missions is the concept of collaboration, because I think in our field, resources are very limited. There are some ambitious, energetic new collaborations emerging, often supported by important bodies, including the Ford and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundations. 
We've heard about the organisation Museums Moving Forward in episodes one and five. Its mission, according to co-leader Mia Lox, is to bring more accountability to the museum sector. Another collaborative group recently formed is the Black Trustee Alliance for Art Museums. Here to explain more is its co-chair, Victoria Rogers, who's also on the executive committee of the Board of Trustees at Creative Time and the Brooklyn Museum. It was a pioneering idea to think about how do we as black board members get to know one another? Like what, what does that look like? And then what power could we have if we came together? And so it is the first time that it's happening, but I feel like it's been a long time coming. The ability to impact change as a collective is obviously stronger than the ability to impact change as an individual. But board members in general don't really do it. And so it's remarkable to have come together and then also to have come together with this shared mission and goal of improving diversity, equity and inclusion within our institutions. It really is remarkable that board members are forming a coalition outside of the institutional setting. We've heard a lot about collective action in this podcast series from staff within museums, and later we'll hear from artists and dealers who are thinking this way too. Here's Victoria Rogers with more on just how the Black Trustee Alliance works. So the Black Trustee Alliance for Art Museums is really committed, first and foremost, to building community um, and developing insights from that community and then being able to measure progress as we set goals against those insights for the kind of change that we want to see. And so our, our first plan is to identify one another. There isn't a list or a collective set of, these are all of the black trustees of American art museums. But we actually are going out and finding those people. And so a second goal of ours is really data-driven. We care a lot about being able to measure our progress. And so gathering data and insights first about that existing group of members that we've identified, but then also about the field and the impact of black people on the field and on institutions. And then we are from that baseline survey, we're going to be repeating it annually to see how that group grows or contracts. We also are commissioning some studies on the presence of black people in boardrooms. Um, on collections committees, exhibitions committees, and also in vendor pipelines too. So we've been thinking really holistically about the impact we can have. This kind of information sharing is genuinely radical. For the data nerds amongst us and anyone interested in equity, it really is exciting. Museums just don't team up in this way and nor do their board members. The Black Trustee Alliance is gathering all kinds of data from tracking institutional power, who's in the boardroom, to information about what the public sees, aka museum exhibitions and acquisitions. It is also looking at how the museum spends its money in the community it purports to serve. Is the museum using, for example, local vendors to arrange the flowers at the gala, to bring food trucks at lunchtime, or to provide the toilet roll in the offices? Some of the ideas are bold and others prosaic, but this is the kind of detailed thinking that museums and their boards are having to undertake. The Black Trustee Alliance sees itself as a resource for museums as they do this work, says Executive Director Brooke Minto. Our hope is always that museums will grow and learn from this kind of partnership and third party support that we're offering them, but that also in the future they will, you know, be, a, be more accountable on their own. So that said, our hope is that, you know, over time, BTA will be able to support the engagement and, you know, further education of 
a group of, you know, research professionals whose expertise and skills sit, you know, somewhere at the intersection of social science, arts administration, museum management, art history, that can eventually go out into museums and improve upon the work that we do. Part of our work in partnering is to ensure that equity does not get lost, that it stays at the forefront, that it, it, you know, it is not lost after this moment, and that there are systems in place to ensure that this work is done year over year, and that it's consistent, and that it's measurable, and that it's moving towards progress. It has to be as essential as all of the other work of museums. Do you have a sense of how systemic problems are, and how easily or otherwise they might be attended to? We're getting a better sense of that, but I mean, I think it's pretty clear they are systemic. I don't think that this transformation and change that we're hoping to see will be quick. I, I think it would be nice. I think it would happen, you know, in the short term. But I think what we're hoping is to put in place some structures um, that will ensure this change is maintained. It not only happens, but is maintained over time. Again, the way that our guests are talking informs this idea that we're moving away from the great hero ideas of history, art history, art administration even. People here are talking about real collaboration, about sharing intelligence and collective future-proofing. And in the spirit of collaboration, the Black Trustee Alliance has been in discussion with Julia Halperin and I about the Burns Halperin Report and about our approaches to data research. We're looking at ways to collaborate in order to advance the work. Groups like the Black Trustee Alliance and Museums Moving Forward are creating new systems and standards for museums. Is this external pressure what museums need? It's a layer of accountability that's common in corporate culture, says the philanthropist Mark Schwartz. He's the former emeritus director of the Detroit Institute of Arts. Nonprofits have audits done by their outside accounting firms to make sure their finances are in order, and there needs to be some kind of independent group that makes sure that nonprofit institutions, no matter what they are, stay true to their mission. Alan, we've had a lot here. Do you think boards need more education and more outside pressure to create the change that people are calling for? I think the pressure is already on them. Some are reacting more clearly than others, but they need mechanisms for being able to step back, rethink what the museum is, who it's for, how the board functions, and so on. I think they really need to revisit their mission statements to redefine or reaffirm what the purpose of the museum is, who it serves, how it evolves and grows. They need a process for self-examination of the board and of the institution and for working with the director. And they need the notion of change and self-awareness to be built into their DNA. That's such an important point, this idea of whether the museum is fixed or whether it can evolve, really comes back to the question we asked in the first museum episode, which is, can museums change or do we simply need new institutions? That links us to the next big question, which is, who governs the governors? Who checks that the trustees are doing their jobs well? Museums have grown out of a noblesse oblige model, this idea that privileged people have a responsibility towards those in society with less standing and wealth. Whilst the institution itself has grown and come to resemble a corporation, 
Its governance remains rooted in the style of a gentleman's club, and often one struggling to accept new members and new ideas. Every level of the museum is bound by hierarchy. Everyone, including the director, answers to someone else. Everyone, that is, apart from the board. Here's Larry Marks and Mark Schwartz again. There is no governance of governance. That, that, that's, that's, that's for sure. And, and, and I can tell you what the boards that I'm aware of that very little thought is put into that. Are you really adhering to your governance and, and fulfilling the missions of the museum? Or even should the mission be changed? There's increasing incidences where they're not staying true to their mission. It can be because a board member has too much influence. It can be because the museum's struggling for funding and needs to go a different direction just to be able to bring in enough money to maintain the museum's viability or institution's viability. So how do you make sure that uh, an institution is staying true to its mission? Governance, to me, is the critical issue going forward. The main frame supporting the growth of museums is money. And most of that money comes from trustees. So the bigger the museum's ambitions get, the bigger the boards. What's the problem with that? Well, you can get mission creep, knowledge gaps, groupthink. Everything, quite frankly, can become harder to handle. Here's Larry and Mark again. You know, a lot of boards are pretty overwhelming in terms of their size, and it's not the most productive environment to get 30 people in a room and hope they're going to come up with something great. The size of boards at museums has to be really examined. You really should have a board where each vote has equal weight. And I don't think you can do that unless you have a really deeply informed and engaged board And the larger it gets, it's more difficult for so many different reasons to have board members that as such that are on a a level playing field. So why did boards get so big? Boards have first grew over the years because you needed to add wealthy donors to the board because if they didn't if they weren't on the board uh, then there was this fear that they they wouldn't make large donations then you've seen additional growth for a good reason over the last few years because uh, it's become important that that boards represent their communities better so now you've got a second wave of growth and while that's good that the, the boards are much more diversified, you've now increased the size of, of the boards to an even larger extent, which makes them much more difficult to manage. For some trustees, this moment has challenged what they thought they knew about the museum. Here's the collector and philanthropist Pam Kramlik, co-founder of the Kramlik Collection and president of the Kramlik Art Foundation and the president of the New Art Trust. It's kind of an overwhelming experience that we've been through because I think Up to now, I've always believed that the museum is the source of understanding what our world is all about and how we get along with each other. And I know when the museum opened in San Francisco, we were looking to outreach to the community so that we could bring more people into the museum. And I think it's been hard to understand exactly what they want. Pam is also a trustee of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, which hit the headlines in July 2020. 
Gary Garrels, the senior curator of painting and sculpture, announced his resignation following an uproar over comments he allegedly made about racial and gender equity during an all-staff Zoom meeting. He'd said something similar during a previous public event. Acknowledging the huge mountain that needed to be scales, Garrel said parity would take time. In the panel about visibility for women in art, he said, the other thing I have to say, and I've reassured artists, we will continue to collect white men. The art world was immediately divided. There were those who said Garrels represented an outdated view of contemporary art, and there were just as many, perhaps more, who rushed to his defense, saying he was a curator with a long history of supporting women artists, artists of color, and queer artists, and that he'd done so ahead of the curve. For the museum leadership in San Francisco, it was a moment of crisis and introspection. When we had the mix-up in the museums, we were really trying to figure out what was it that we all did wrong? I mean, what, where were we missing in our ability to communicate with the public? The scenario at SF moment was the perfect maelstrom of internal communication breakdown, public outcry, and social media furore. Lots of people working in museums are afraid of talking openly for fear of retaliation or being cancelled online. I asked Sarah Arison how real that concern is. The very extreme kind of cancel culture that's going on can be really difficult to navigate. It is very easy to say very mean things virtually. <laughs> While there is this technological whiplash and people can, can say anything about anybody at any time, I think it is still really important to spend time in person whenever possible to humanize it. And then you're able to actually have a, a productive discussion about it. I would like to really facilitate more communication. Let's let the staff understand why this person is a board member. Why did they get involved? What are they passionate about? What do they want for the future of the museum? Why are certain decisions being made? If there was greater kind of communication I think that it could really make things better. There is a lack of communication that is dogging the field. We've interviewed so many people for this series and have been shocked, really, at how broken communication really is. So many people are really invested in the art world. They really want the best for it, but they're not talking to one another. Alan, that lack of communication is one of the central themes we were hoping to address with this series. For sure. Our, as everything gets bigger, it gets more compartmentalized. And that clearly has happened in our museums and throughout the entire art system. We have an awareness gap and a communication gap. Sometimes what naturally happens is a kind of attack-defense pattern when, in fact, I think if everyone could step back, take a breath, reflect you would see that more commonly than not, boards, directors, curators, audiences do all want the same things. They just need to define what they are and find effective ways to be communicating them and thinking them through. Several trustees we talk to say that they're aware that the model is flawed, but they point out that the realities of funding museums are tough. Here's Victoria Rogers, Pamela Kramlik, and the collector Jill Krauss, who's also a board member of New York's MoMA and New Museum of Contemporary Art. Because we don't have sufficient government funding for these spaces, if there wasn't philanthropy, I don't know if they would exist, right? So that's what the stakes are. It's really clear. And I just wonder sometimes if people fully understand that. Unfortunately, the way the world works is you have to run an institution and it has to pay for itself. 
And I think the public forgets that without the Board of Trustees and without the money going in through the board, the museum wouldn't exist. And so that's where I think we have to be willing to accept each other for who we are. You know, I know there's a whole group of people who believe that wealthy people shouldn't be on the boards of institutions, you know, that there should be some more egalitarian way to uh, do this. And I understand that, and I don't believe that every board member should be there for money. I really don't. But without people of means on these boards, these institutions are going to struggle into the future unless, you know, there's some other way to raise money. Much of this is down to the fact that there is so little public investment in culture, says the collector and philanthropist Fred Bidwell, who's the executive director of Front International and a trustee of the Cleveland Museum of Art. In the United States, I mean, effectively zero public support for the arts. I mean, you know, when you look at what's really available in government support, it's infinitesimal. It's tough for us to imagine how to break out of some of the issues, the sort of concentration of power and, you know, and influence with uh, wealthy donors if there isn't some public uh, dollars to balance that out. Otherwise, you know, it's all going to be run by uh, a small cadre of, uh, of the very wealthy. If the board can step back, look at itself, re-identify the museum for the public civic institution it is, to embed within its missions and goals the needs to be responsive to a wide range of audiences to which the museum is refuge and a meeting place, then there is the basis on which to begin to recognize in a broader way the true public significance of museums and therefore to perhaps open up funding to support museums as being central to a healthy and well-functioning culture rather than as a um, bastion of the elite. This brings us to the current model, often called the pay-to-play model, as in trustees get a board seat in exchange for their donation. Some board members disagree with the terminology, finding it divisive. Here's Victoria Rogers. The pay-to-play model being, because I don't know if there's much playing, I do think that there's this like false narrative around the power that board members want to have. And so it's a brain trust to draw upon, but not a dictatorial leadership team of an institution. And so I think, you know, I'm sure there are examples where that is not true, but I think to universalize that is false and actually a really dangerous place to be because it starts to have a sort of us versus them, the board versus the staff. And that I think is why no one shows up to be a board member, is to, to be in that kind of antagonistic relationship. I think everyone is coming with an open heart and mind and, and a, a desire to be supportive. And so I just, I am fearful of, of narratives like that pay to play idea because um, at least for me, when I hear that, it makes me want to disengage. It's no surprise that we're talking about cash. But trustees are also aware that on better run boards, there should be as much expertise washing around as there is money. Here are Fred Bidwell and Sarah Arison again. 
you know, where there's money, there's power, and that means that boards are often, you know, uh, larded with wealthy, powerful people. I think we've got to try and help people understand that it can't be purely pay-to-play. We've got to move away from this idea that, you know, you've got to pay $50,000 a year to the museum to even be on the board. It's so exclusionary that it almost guarantees that the board will be out of step with the community. So there must be some sort of hybrid model where there are people on the board who are there because they're influential, they speak for the community, and those who are on the board because they are willing to invest their treasure in supporting um, the institution. Both are valid and both are needed. Just because you have somebody who can write a really big check, that doesn't mean they'll make a good board member. That doesn't mean they care about the mission. That doesn't mean they want to move the institution forward. I think being a good board member means, you know, if you can, contributing the, the dues, but also showing up, um, you know, being engaged, uh, being there for the director. Dues paying board members are so important to museums. I mean, it, it is it is not ticket sales that is, keep, that is keeping these institutions going, you know, that that's for sure. I also, at the same time, would like to re-examine the definition of value from a board member. There are so many other ways that board members can bring value. All of the trustees we talk to are aware and willing to bring more diverse voices into the museum leadership. All of them are in favour of better communication. But how is the balance of power structured around those new voices? One trustee suggested creating a kind of kids' table for them, having a second board comprising community members that was separate to the money board, keeping real power separate in effect. Money is just one tool at the table, but in reality, money tends to talk louder than everything else, and the person writing the largest cheque tends to have a megaphone. Here's Mark Schwartz. Certainly extra weight is given in many, many institutions because it's the larger check, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that you're getting bad decisions or, you know, or, or selfish decisions because uh, my experience is that a lot of the people that are writing the larger checks are also people that are, you know, can be completely selfless in trying to make the best decisions for the institution. The problem is that there are situations where that isn't the case, and you can have someone who's writing that big check who's narcissistic, has very specific interests that aren't in the best interest overall of the institution, and that's why I, these issues of governance have to be thought out much better for all institutions in, in order to go forward. Uh, maybe there's some, some better solutions out there. In our world, money is power. And abuse of power comes as no surprise, as the artist Jenny Holzer put it so well. This is where the lack of industry standards and external governance gets really tricky. What to do in a situation where a dominant board member is also bad for the museum? How do boards deal with bullies? It's difficult. Here's Jill Krause. In the case of institutions, boards need very strong board leadership and 
very strong leadership from uh, the presidents or the directors of their institutions. And if one of those or both of those um, slip, I worry. Maybe there's a way of separating patronage from philanthropy, donations from volunteerism. Here's Mark Schwartz. Is there a different way to engage philanthropists and still have them support their institutions about, without guaranteeing them a board seat? Some of the issues that have occurred, rightfully so, with artists withdrawing works for, from different shows because of where that money came from that supported that show, would that occurred if that money had just been given as general operating funds to the museum versus having a name on a wing or being the major underwriter of the show. I think that those instances would be much rarer, but I, I, I think it would be great if we could find ways to engage philanthropists without them putting demands on an institution. And this, is, this isn't a new story. This has been the challenge that institutions have had for such a long period of time. Alan, in your opinion, what does it take to be a good board member? I would start with the question, what does a board need to be? to function in a healthy, productive, responsive way to the institution and how it functions. Within that, there are what a friend of mine who sits on a number of boards refers to as good donors, the person who rises above their own individual interests and needs for the greater benefit that may have impact on how other board members go about how they look at the institution, their role, and their levels of generosity. Some people are openly generous and some people are conditionally generous. I think if boards begin to recognize that convening power should be just as present at the table as money power, that could begin to shift things significantly. People who are there because they have ideas, because they impact others, because they are reflective of the times in ways that the boards may not be as directly in contact with. If you put these two elements together within a board, you don't change the function and responsibility of the board, but you equip it to far better be actively responsive to times as they change and as needs change. One thing that keeps occurring to me through this episode is something that Dina Hagag said, I think in our first episode, which is that money has created more problems than philanthropy can solve. Do you think that this model of boards of a small group of people in a room with good intent trying to represent a public that in reality they're quite far removed from can work? I think that's why they need to rethink themselves because, um, yes, in most instances or many instances, probably more instances than not, boards are at a remove. Everybody's volunteering. Everybody's doing something in the middle of doing everything else that they do. There's a structural problem that needs to be addressed. And I think if you can address the structural problem, then it would make clearer to what extent a board may be fundamentally unwell and not in a best position to serve its institution and its institution's missions or not. I recognize we've spoken in previous episodes about is this model too broken to fix? And I completely agree with Thelma Golden when she said that it's important that new models be created and that they are in fact being 
created as we speak. At the same time, what the traditional institutions have in terms of facility, presence in community, extraordinary scope of collections, in most cases, very great expertise, and also prominence within communities says to me that it's definitely worth the efforts, however challenging they may be, to bring a greater consciousness to identifying structural problems and seeking to set things well. We tend to, and journalists are guilty of this especially, talk about museums as monolithic entities. But doing the interviews for this show really reinforced the fact that each museum is a completely different beast. And the question, I think, probably for the future, for the boards, is what kind of museum do you want to be? I think it was Mickey Garcia who said in our interview, some museums may just want to float away as precious jewels and stay that way. And others want to be more vigorously grounded in their civic roles within their communities. And that depends on the board. That, and it also is really interesting to think about the geography and how specific things are that way. So being on the board of a major museum in New York City is totally different than being on a board almost anywhere else because of the power and wealth of the institutions in New York. You kind of see groupthink regionally. You know, with our data studies, there's this really interesting phenomenon where the big museums in Los Angeles come in at roughly the same level as each other, despite the fact that we're talking about quite different museums. You know, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art compared to the Hammer Museum, they have really different agendas, but their gender and racial representation is roughly the same. And it seems to be a really local phenomenon. We see it, I mean, all the Los Angeles museums, and that's a kind of smaller community. In New York, you see much greater disparity. New York museums are by and large older <laughs> and more established than in certainly in a city like Los Angeles. So they do have a longer history and profile that gets built upon a tradition that can naturally make it a greater and more effective or more lasting magnet for wealth, while at the same time, it also perhaps creates greater traditions that are harder to step outside of and examine and rethink. In Los Angeles, it just so happens that between Annie Philbin, director of The Hammer, Michael Govan, the director at LACMA, and now with Johanna Burton, director at MOCA, you have three of the more significant museums in that city who are being led by very progressive, thoughtful leaders who are right for their time. I think if you look at uh, smaller cities where the museum doesn't play as central a role, it becomes far more challenging uh, because the, the, the money narrows down very, very quickly. If you don't have um, a very beneficent leading patron who just writes the big checks, or if you don't have a growing community of of let's say collectors or other patrons who believe in the museum as a civic institution, then it's the financial challenge is so great that um, I think it is harder for those kinds of museums, not necessarily to step back and examine themselves, but to define alternatives or to identify solutions within their um, communities. 
it's also when you talk about LA, it's really interesting to think of the scope of financial, the financial scales of the museums there. You know, we also have the Getty, which funds, you know, the Pacific Standard Time project, for instance, did a huge amount to bring undiscovered artists to light. And also the idea of smaller cities in these museums being more financially precarious is absolutely true. But another interesting thing that we saw in the data was that these smaller institutions are often leading the way in terms of changing with the times. And you can see really clearly, to Jill's point about leadership, you can see the impact of specific directors on those institutions really, really clearly in the data. You can see the year that they joined and you can see things progressing and evolving from that moment. Or like you talked about at the top of the show with Annie Philbin, sometimes the larger museums a slower, and I was reminded of that last night reading Farin Ayeri's new book, Art and Power, Far as a Guest on this show. And she interviewed Anne Temkin at MoMA about the big rehang of the museum that MoMA had in 2019. And Anne said it was two things. It was a generational shift. There were a bunch of curators that came to power that could make those changes now. And there was also the shift from essentially the audience, that the audience was placing different demands on the institution. And Anne said, I'm paraphrasing here, if MoMA hadn't changed, the world would have changed regardless and MoMA would have been the dinosaur by now. And th that point about change really seems to be the dominant theme of these museum shows, that those institutions that can change should and will likely survive and those that can't may not. Or maybe a museum that is in such a troubled state and doesn't have the, the finances and the momentum of support to sustain themselves, maybe those become great vessels through which something radically different can, can happen. The other thing about institutions in the United States is that even in, in under tough conditions or even in places that are challenged beyond their capacity to survive, we do have this capacity for reinvention built into how we think. So, Alan, you believe that change is possible for our museums. If you're listening, why don't you write to us and let us know what you think. Before we round out today's show, here's a reminder to join us in two weeks' time for our next episode for something totally different. We'll be heading to Portland, Oregon, taking a big step back to look at culture in America today. To end today's episode, we asked our trustees whether, looking ahead, they feel hope or dread. I have hope because I see institutions and organizations kind of thinking differently about their priorities and their programming and their communities. I have hope that these conversations will continue to move forward and that people will continue to be engaged and thoughtful. And, and I, I have hope that these conversations will be productive and about building people and missions up instead of tearing them down. I'm very hopeful. I think we've got an exciting future. I think the museums are going to become more and more important rather than less important. But I just think that they do need to figure out how to do that in a way which is not happening quite at the moment. I'm a super optimist by nature. Unfortunately, that's been, been thrown into uh, question in my own mind, my optimism, because I'm afraid whoever shouts the loudest is heard the, the most. 
and I'm not always sure that's the sanest voice in the room. I certainly feel hope. With the power of the collective, I'm, I'm a believer that change will happen and come. I'm an optimist. I'm very hopeful. I don't dread the future. This is a, a wonderful time to be involved because there is historic change happening and needed change. And I'm grateful that I'm a tiny part of that change. Tune in to Hope and Dread every second Wednesday and subscribe wherever it is you find your podcasts. Follow us on social media for related show content and tell us what you think at artand underscore media. Hope and Dread is brought to you by Art And, the new editorial platform created by Schwartzman And. The executive producer is Alan Schwartzman, who co-hosts the show together with me, Charlotte Burns of Studio Burns, which produces the series. Robert Bound is our associate editor. Holly Fisher mixes and edits the sound. Additional research has been provided by Julia Hernandez, Calder Singer, and Ali Nemirov. Theme music by the inimitable Philip Glass. <laughs> <laughs>